Now, the Middle East is back on top of the news agenda this weekend, of course. On Friday, a US drone strike at Baghdad airport killed, among other people, Kazam Soleimani, generally agreed to be the second most powerful man in Iran. David Murphy is a lecturer in military history and strategic studies in Maynooth, and he joins me now. Uh, you're welcome, David. Uh, David, uh, tell us a bit first about uh, Soleimani. He's, well, he's an interesting, or he was an interesting character. Um, surprisingly, I think, when you consider the potential of what he, he, he commanded, the, the Quds, organisation. Um, very little known about him to the, to the general public. Uh, obviously, intelligence agencies in the West for the last decade have been trying to compile uh, a file on him, a dossier, and I'm getting no more about him. Uh, but uh, considered as a, an extremely dangerous operator. Uh, and as I said... Uh, so tell us about Quds first. Yeah, maybe. Quds, yeah, what was that? I mean, Quds is, is, is essentially, it's it's a, an unusual operation, maybe from a Western perspective in, in terms that it's a, it's an, a CIA type intelligence operation, but it also has integrated special forces units. Uh, so all in all, you're looking at over 120,000 uh, personnel. Uh, so there's considerable potential there to do mischief. And it is and operating in a lot of countries. It, it, it's, it's brief, essentially, is to spread the, 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 the Iranian idea of the, of the Islamic message outside of Iran. So you will see it operating. It will train and equip Hezbollah in Lebanon. It will train and equip Shia militias in Iraq. Uh, and then obviously it was active recently in the local... In the, the Syrian civil war against ISIS. So it's, it's brief, so, so, it's external. So, so and this, we get into the confusion here of who's on whose side. So they would have been fighting mm-hmm. against ISIS with, with the Americans quite, quite recently, yeah, in, a, in a sense. Absolutely, they were running, they were, there was a parallel system, so to speak. The, the Americans were fighting ISIS and, and the Iranians through Hezbollah and other Shia militias were also fighting ISIS in, in Syria. Uh, so they were running parallel. And then on the other hand, in, in Iraq, they would have been uh, operating directly fighting the Americans. Absolutely. I mean, during the worst years for uh, America and uh, after 2003, uh, when the insurgency developed and you had Shia militias fighting the Americans, uh, they were also backed by the Quds organisation and ultimately commanded by Soliani himself. So So a massively powerful guy right across the region, really. I saw somebody suggest that he was probably more powerful than some heads of state due to the, the the scope of his reach. I think so. I mean, and he has he he because he's he's the the Quds organization deals directly to uh, the, the the Ayatollah in Iran. Essentially, the the Iranian pol- political system and the Iranian president is not in his chain of command. So he was dealing directly with the with ultimate the power leader. all yeah. the time, yeah. uh, and that's why they got such massive resourcing. And I, I notice as well that like even among people who are against the regime in, in Iran. He seemed to be this kind of almost mythical kind of popular figure for them. Like that, even people who are out, out, might have been out protesting in in recent weeks are mourning him. Absolutely. I mean, in the last, especially say in the last five years, he was coming more out of the shadows in Iran itself and engaging in politics and local issues. Um, so he was he was increasing his his profile as a popular figure. Um, and again, people who had who it was it was an easy fit for people who had difficulties with the Rouhani regime then to be offered this alternative public political figure who was not immersed in party politics in Iran. So it was an interesting kind of uh, transition he was doing. OK, now this is a huge question. Why was he targeted specifically? Why was he targeted now? Well, in the, in, in the immediate sense, I mean, a lot of people are saying that this is, this is merely... Uh, 
an exercise by Trump to, to kind of, and OK, he did sanction this operation. But I think in immediate operational terms, he was picked up on, on, on the intelligence radar, so to speak, uh, moving from uh, Iran into Syria in the last week, into Syria, from Syria to Lebanon and then back into Iraq. So they knew he'd been orchestrating unrest in Iraq for the last basically six months or so. Uh, the, the, the American intelligence story is that he was about to off a series of attacks uh, imminent and sinister we're told but yeah, but yeah. it seems to be vague on what that intelligence was yeah, I mean it? it's been suggested kind of like uh, attacks on uh, American contractors American civilians American embassies which falls within the the, the, the Quds brief they have done this before this is this, this is the kind of thing you do so that is what's being suggested but we haven't had any real detail on what the plan was as as, as they saw it. Okay. So and like they they had they, they've thought about taking him out before, haven't they? Various yeah, they, they, the, the Brits thought of doing it before, and they've they've been watching him for quite a while. Yeah. He's been on. He's been on top of very high in this kind of list of kind of dangerous persons of interest to be taken out of possible. Um, and he was unfortunately he was he was being tra- uh, trailed uh, essentially from the moment he left Iran last week, and then when he arrived back in to Iraq. Um, he was taken out near the airport. And, so. and sorry, Brendan, did, did, didn't he make his name during the 1980s Iran-Iraq war? And isn't that why he has some sort of uh, hold over the whole of the, the Iranian nation, so to speak, as a kind of a, you know, devil-may-care sort of uh, character? Yeah, extremely, extremely missions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think he didn't. He put together his own... Um, Battalion, basically, didn't he, and headed off to war. I mean, he's been. I mean, what do we know about him? He's born in fifty-seven, which is interesting. Actually, his successor, the guy who is who is taken over from now, born the same same year, to the same age. Um, but born in fifty-seven, joined the Revolutionary Guard immediately on the revolution in seventy-nine, and then comes to prominence in the bring. You know, basically getting together an ad hoc unit during the Iran Iraq War, which I'm sure we all remember around the table of the, the way it dragged on in the nineteen eighties was a pretty awful, bloody affair. Um, but again, the Iranian system very good at identifying people in that, uh, either as, as people who have become martyrs or people who have become heroes, and then all of a sudden they're on uh, the public conscious. Now, obviously, the world now waits with, with bated breath slightly to see uh, what Iran's response will be. What what do we think the potential responses are? Well, I think it's, in some ways it's it'll be more of the same. I mean, I, th- I think in, in the medium and the short term level, we can expect, I think, cyber issues. They will mount cyber attacks uh, in various locations. I think we can see that. We've seen in the last... Have tw- they quite a sophisticated they have, yeah, mechanism uh, for that? Basically yeah. based within the Quds organisation, they have. They can reach out so, and they have done in the past, so they will. Um, I think we can see an increase of activity as we've seen in the last 24 hours, like mortarings and rockets, rocket attacks. But the kind of low level stuff that yeah, was going on stuff. anyway, yeah, wasn't it's, it? It's been happening anyway, kind of, um, I think, it, so more of the same problems in the Straits of Hormuz and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think when you look at his place in the security architecture, the state architecture in Iran, um, they will have to tee up some very big statement for to get the world's attention. Uh, I don't think they're going to be content. The Iranians will not be content just to do more of what they've been doing. Uh, they will want to make okay. a statement about it. You this. think it's spectacular here? I think they'll be looking to make a, 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 something that's equivalent. On American soil? American soil. I mean, and that comes down, I mean, they have operators that can operate internationally. Uh, they obviously are strongly linked and a, a major back of Hezbollah, and Hezbollah is an, an international organisation now with strong presence in Latin America, America, Canada. So there's potential there for spectacular on American soil. So would you be worried now, are we on the brink of, of um, 
I saw Richard Haas saying that if there is a war here, it'll be a war without territories. The whole the mm. whole world could be the uh, could be the theatre for this war. Are you worried we're on the brink of some kind of war? We seem to be. We're in a, a peculiar situation in that the lines between peace, peace and war have become totally blurred in the last ten or twenty years. We have these conflicts that go from being low spectrum to high spectrum all over the world. Nobody is actually formally legally declaring war on anyone. But this conflict exists and it morphs and it manifests itself in attacks on city streets or it manifests itself in mortar attacks in Baghdad or a targeted assassination. Um, so the question is, there's, there's a lot of this negativity in the world. Will it inter- intersect all at one point or will we just have a continued, uh, an upgrading of this kind of like level of conflict across the world? Is the sense that Trump has escalated things here slightly from that, that work-a-day kind of um conflict that we were seeing. This is a huge escalation. I mean, you imagine how the Americans respond if somebody reached into their system and took out their Secretary for Defence or their Assistant Secretary for Defence. This is a huge escalation. Um, and I think even how the, 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 the landscape is immediately changing in in, uh, in Iraq. I mean, the Iraqi presidents actually attended the, the, some of the funeral rites uh, which is a major signal. Uh, and now wants to debate in the Iraqi parliament uh, asking the Americans to leave the country totally. So it's, you could actually argue this is backfiring them totally in terms of their presence in Iraq. Okay, Mary Whelan. I think this is a huge challenge for Europe. Uh, we're much closer to Iran and the <coughs> Gulf of Hormuz than the Americans are. And I really wonder, uh, does Pompeo or, or Trump or the, those others who work in the Amer- American administration, have they any sense of where they are going to next? He seems to act and then expect everything just to go back to normal again. He has said this is to prevent war, that this is not war. And Europe has been wringing its hands a lot in the last few days. Obviously, it cannot encourage what has happened. It's deeply destabilising, but I think Europe has to do more than wring its hands. There's a very interesting article by Dan O'Brien in the paper today, which says that one in every seven barrels of oil coming from the Gulf of Hormuz is coming to Europe. Um, so what are we going to do? What levers do we have Uh, Who does Trump listen to? Because in many ways, the ball is in his court now. And I I just find it extremely worrying. There's there's another interesting point Dan O'Brien makes as well, which is that the US now technically is not dependent on anyone else for oil. They're exporting as much as they import. Mm -hmm. So they actually don't need oil from that region the same way we do in Europe. So presumably that's playing into Trump's tactics here as well. But he has had this obsession with Iran for a very, very, very long time. If you contrast the way he has dealt with North Korea and Iran, it has been quite extraordinary. He came into office. There was a very good um, program uh, between the basically the EU, Russia, China and the US to ensure that um, Iran was um, embarking on a policy of denuclearization. Yeah, and but, Trump argue, but Trump argued that it, it didn't stop their missile program and that it didn't stop their activities across the region, which which is exactly what we're talking about today. But two of the, it wasn't meant to do that. It was meant to, to deal with one very dangerous thing. And the way you solve most problems is by taking them piece by piece okay. and gradually breaking okay. it down. And there was no logical reason to, yeah. to tear up that program. That was an emotional type of response right. I think but what it has done it, it has discredited the EU because the EU was a staunch part of that that whole negotiation the Iranians did keep to the terms of that deal the deal said nothing about missile programs mm-hmm. the deal said nothing mm-hmm. about what they were doing in Syria or Yemen um, and uh, basically 
he got away with it. Now, Trump does seem, in fairness to him, to be suggesting, as you said, he said, Mary, uh, I'm not looking for war here. I'm not looking for regime change. We know that Trump is, well, up to now, has not been interested in getting involved in, in wars in these places. You know, it's America first and all that kind of thing. But is there is there a, is there a question here that Trump is actually trying to force them to the table? Because he, he made that tweet about... Uh, what did he say? He said, uh, Iran has never won a war, but it's never lost a negotiation. Is there a place for diplomacy now, do you think? Well, it would be a very unusual way to get to a table to take out the person who has uh, most embodied your prestige, um, as Iran would see it. The Iranian economy is in a very bad place. The American sanctions have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, one thing that this will have done, and there was talk about that there hasn't been much op- opposition in Iran to the response, and that is because the Iranians are a very patriotic people and an attack on this man has, has actually unified the country. So I cannot see uh, them then stepping back and saying, oh, let's go to get to the negotiation negotiating table with a partner who has torn up the last agreement that we were keeping with them. This is where Michael Clark has a very good piece this morning (coughs) um, where he's talking on those points, Mary, around tactics versus strategy. And at the moment, this is very tactical. Now, I would say there's a, there was an element of inevitability about this. You know, mm. it, this has been escalating for a while. Um, but nev- nevertheless, where the strategy will play out and how it will play out, I think politically it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out in the US. Because on the one hand, Trump has been really clear, I do not want to take part in foreign wars. That's not our place in America. But on the other hand, when the Republicans... Um, you know, beat the military drum in the run-up to an election, it tends to fare well for them. So I, I just, I don't know enough about US politics, but yeah. having watched... You'd Trump, imagine it could go quite uh, badly, go Tim, if there, if there is a complete mess going on there for the next year and there's American soldiers being killed and whatever. That's exactly right. And and I suppose, of course, this all deflects from, or in the press, it deflects from impeachment just after the holidays. And that would have been the number one story this week in the US um, had it not been for this. So, so there's, a, there's an element of all of that. But to go back to the point about what this means for us, what it means for Europe, what it means for Ireland, that po- the two key points here where I feel we are really, really exposed is, first of all, in terms of cybersecurity. And when you talk about spectacular attacks, actually, and I completely agree, um, what, what could be a spectacular attack is a, a cybersecurity attack on a city, um, either at a European level or indeed at a US level. Now, Atlanta, um, the city of Atlanta faced a major hack, I think, three years ago, which which brought its economy to its knees. So cities are now very exposed to cyber attacks. Mm-hmm. And the second issue, which which Mary pointed to, is is Europe's um, exposure in terms of um, just how dependent we are on importing of fossil fuels and 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 just how 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 um, the Middle East remains a really really important uh, uh, I suppose uh, uh, area for us in terms of importing of oil. So they're the two areas that I think I think this could change everything in 2020. Frankly, this first week, um, because it could bring geopolitics to the fore so much. And I think Dan O'Brien's piece is really strong on that. And you know, Russia's reaction. Turkey's reaction, China's reaction to this will be really important. So all of a sudden those issues like Brexit, like our domestic election will be important. But actually the geopolitics of oil and energy might well be the issue that defines this year. You see, I wonder though if there isn't this kind of consensus across a lot of the media here that Trump is the bad guy here, that we shouldn't have provoked this, that he should he should what, just let, let Iran keep poking and poking and poking that that a show of strength 
might have been necessary in this situation. But this is a particular show of strength. Um, there is many, America is so strong. There are so many ways it can show its strength. And it has been in the sanctions it has, it has on Iran. What it is, is doing to their economy is really quite dramatic in the last uh, year. Uh, this man was certainly not a good man. He provoked disruption and misery all across the region and further afield. He could have been taken out. Uh, I don't even like using that term about mm. another human being, but he could have been killed many times in the past. This is a very, very provocative uh, attack. And a provocative attack is intended to provoke. So what are they intending to provoke and why? That's what you'd have to ask if you were dealing with rational actors. Yeah. But is it just... You don't just, think we are dealing with no, rational No, but sometimes actors. Mr. Trump, and I don't think everything he does is necessarily bad, but sometimes you do wonder, is it just the impeachment issue. Um, mm. Is it just someone... No, he was presented with, with a range of options options. Yes. by his security advisors who I, I hear people saying, oh, the neocons are back in charge and everything, but, but it was one of the options. Do you remember a few months ago after the trouble in the Gulf of Hormuz that he, he actually said, and there was a US drone, I think, um, shot, shot down, down yeah. over yeah. Iran, and he actually put them on warning, which, which is what you'd expect. Yeah. You put them on warning, I'm going to do this, you do it, and then you sort of say, and you do that again, and I'll do even worse. That I can understand. That's a managed e- escalation. This but time, he did not consult with his Mary, allies. Wasn't there a sense that time that, that Trump might have backed down and that oh, he, he might be still, completely. still humiliated by that, so he needed to overcompensate this time? Yeah, completely. Yeah, my, my view was that these ideas that he he's doing this for domestic political purposes, I, I don't really buy into that uh, narrative uh, because he knows his history. In 1991, George Bush, of course, had a big win uh, in Kuwait and he was turfed out 18 months later with um, in, 19, in November 1992 on the, the economy stupid Bill Clinton mantra. Uh, 2003 Iraq war played somewhat well for George Bush, but he won a very close election, mainly again on, on economic issues. And I tend to think 2020 will be about the economy more than anything else. I mean, Americans are extraordinary insular people in many ways, particularly in the so-called uh, flyover states. And... Um, I think he's emboldened in many ways by, by impeachment. I mean, he comes out constantly bemoaning the fact that the do-nothing Democrats, as he described them, are getting the way of his, his, his greatness. Um, but uh, And he's extraordinarily impulsive. I mean, that's why he's got to where he is in, in many ways, because he, he broke the rules about engaging in, in, in the Republican debates, where he basically, instead of all being very nice, he described all the other candidates as you know, basically useless yeah. and that he was the man who saved the Republican Party. I see him tweet yesterday that 95% approval rating within the party. Um, so he, uh, yeah, he's an extraordinary individual uh, in many ways and uh, I tend to think this is, you know, as, as you said, Brendan, he was presented with, an, with a, a range of issues and he plumped for, in many ways, the most dramatic one that is symptomatic of his style. Stephen? Um, I guess three things. The first is, you know, we spent a good pro- portion of this program talking about um, climate, climate-related issues. Um, we're, uh, um, now we're talking about geopolitics. I think these two things will define our national conversation for quite some time into the future. Um, it's no doubt it's become more, more um, extreme. Um, an interesting piece of history: uh, the week after um, uh, Bill Clinton was impeached, he also ordered airstrikes. Um, so uh, there, I wouldn't discount the political um, system there. But uh, it's also important to understand that there are there are different different um, uh, perspectives on this. So 
uh, Neil Ferguson, who, who's a, a, a right-wing commentator, um, on page uh, 16 of the um, uh, Sunday Times, he's writing that it'll be grand, Iran is... Um, is weak, uh, you know, we, we can take them, etc., etc. Um, I can't think of a single thing about which Neil Ferguson has been correct. He's a very interesting negative indicator, in my view. If he says it's going to be grand, I think it's not going to be grand. Um, and I, 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 the, when people start banging triumphalist drums, I get extremely I don't worried. think Neil Ferguson think, is being that triumphalist. No, let's, I don't know. Let's, let's, <laughs> read, 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 read the text carefully. It is, it is, he, is, he is saying, no, no, look, at their weak. Well, they, their economy is weak, but their military is not yeah. and I think it's important and, and, to and also David the, the, the point that. is that I, I keep hearing this phrase is it asymmetrical war no, asymm- that, I mean, that, that, that I mean so this is it I mean the, the Iranian army is not necessarily equipped a lot of their a lot of their air, aircraft maybe whatever else would be pretty much obsolescent um, but that is not necessarily what they want to do it would be if, you, if, you, if it was an invasion situation you would be drawn into another horrendous asymmetric war where there will be Iraq again to the time to the power of 10 you know uh, power 20 it would be that kind of a yeah, yeah. So we're, it's like that old situation yeah. of that that uh, Trump would need to get lucky every time, but they would only need to get lucky. Yeah, once it would not be a conventional war. But I mean, coming back to what we were saying earlier on, I mean, the, the even if we take Trump out of this for a moment, he got a series, he got advice, he took a decision, whatever else. But even if we take him out for a moment, I mean, the people advising him, that that lack of long term strategy just mm-hmm. fascinates me. This, you know, the, you you. you Wargaming on the tabletop or whatever way you want to do it, and you say, "Where is this actually going? What is the good end here?" We, we, um, which presumably they have some idea. We're we're not privy to their thinking. Well, I was, but I was, just, I was just thinking about this during the week because I was watching that interview with Wesley Clark, and he was talking about going to war in Iraq in two thousand and three, and he was asked, "Why did you do it?" And he said, "Because we couldn't think of what else to do. Uh, we just had we had a terrorist problem, so it should have been a, an intelligence, police, special forces kind of like package to deal with it, but." In, Instead, we turned it into a military adventure because we didn't know what to do. We had this tool, which was a very elaborate military, uh, and you have when you have a hammer, everything looks like a name. Yeah. So they decided to get get involved in the military. Is there, is there, is there yeah. any sense at all that this could work? This that it like he didn't go in all guns blazing, boots on the ground, like drone slips in, takes out a crucial piece of the architecture. Uh, is there any sense that this will leave the whole situation in disarray? Oh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think his, his plan for retaliation to Iranian retaliation, which is you know, 52 more strikes. Uh, I mean, he, he has the 1970s still in his mind, but 52 yeah. more strikes. Um, one for, for every one for of every the hostages. The hostages. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. Is, you know, it's a bizarre obsession American presidents have had with Iran. Um, but that's not going to solve an issue either. It will, it will kind of just escalate the problem further. Grania. So this was an assassination of number two... Um, of, a, of a, a nation state on foreign soil by the US. So I just, mm. the audaciousness, the brazenness of that is still I, astounds me. Um, the UN well, I gather when there were attacks on US bases, um, the Iraqis in Iraq, the Iraqis did not come out and condemn it or anything. So I think that with, 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 there, there seems to be grey areas yeah, between Yeah, I guess the point I'm making, the, the Brenton, relationships is, is, is just being clear as to where we are today at this point and what this attack actually means. You know, the UN has said it is highly likely this is a breach of international law. And it's just worth always reminding ourselves of that, that there is a legal framework around how governments right. act and should act. And it's likely that that framework has been breached. Even if the guy huge. is fomenting war and dissent in half a dozen well, countries. The, the law is very across. clear and the law is very clear on that, that there has to be 
um, it, there has to be a reasonable defence so there has to be a particular reason so there has to be an imminent attack and I'm not an international human rights lawyer but it is the, you know the, the legal framework has been written to to allow states to take action where they need to and and I think that's why the UN has said it is highly likely that this was a, a breach of international and the US are saying that they, they, it was a defensive and action defense, yeah. imminent sinister and that's attack. what we heard so from Dominic Rabb that's uh, that what we heard from Dominic Rabb on the news with the British when he weighed in out they've taken a long time there was yeah. you know, a where's bar so they've come up with a line. Yeah, but they've they? now come up with a line yeah. that this is self-defence, and the Americans are quite entitled to, to engage in self-defence. And Donald Trump, as we know, following in a long list of American presidents, is deeply sceptical of the UN in all its its nature. They haven't paid their fees for you know for yonks, and um, you know I think would happily pull out of the UN, but that might just be a step too far. Um, so yeah. Sorry, just on the UN thing, I think it's interesting in all the debates about this and other incidents happening in the Middle East recently, UN is very rarely mentioned. I suspect it has become a cipher in, in, in these these. I events. suspect we, we will have a meeting of the Security Council next week because Russia and China yes. at this point will want it and certainly um, the Europeans will want it and some everybody will want a forum to try and de-escalate the situation. It probably can't do it, but it's the only forum that exists where you can possibly try to de-escalate the situation. Mary, can you explain a bit to us about Russia's position in all this? Because it is quite, uh, well, they're in a unique situation here themselves, aren't they? Brendan, I wouldn't even attempt to. (laughs) But but a few, let me just make a few points. One is, look at Syria. Um, People say it was the Russians who saved uh, Assad. It wasn't really. It was Soleimani who yeah. saved Assad until the Russians came in then with their air force. So he has been crucial to a part of their strategy in the Middle East. Um, but also look where Russia is, look where Iran is. Do they really want instability on their doorstep? Um, they're quite happy to allow them, I would suspect, stir mm-hmm. up trouble, trouble. But really, they don't want this much trouble. So I think they will be trying to uh, operate um, to moderate, to de-escalate. The Chinese have already come out with with statements trying to de-escalate the situation. And I would say that and, and America's allies in the region have as well, I think, haven't they? They're all talking de-escalation. As well. Yes, they are. And, Even and Mary, the ones you, who are the stirrer-uppers, yes, if you like. Yes. 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 If, if So if you were a gambling woman, how, how would you see this playing out now? It does frighten me. And yeah, it does it, we're it. always what, what frightens you is what you can't foresee what will mm-hmm. happen next. Um, in the best of all possible worlds, if people really wanted to stay, step back, they can find a way to step back. The Iranians will, no matter what anybody says to them, because they are very independent, they will find a way to retaliate. Do they retaliate in a way that provokes the Americans uh, in a in a to escalate further or can they do something that the Americans can choose to ignore as a, a so major So that everyone gets to save face. The Iranians are seen to hit back but not Not, not, not to would, damage okay. uh, vital uh, US interests. So but I would also hopeful that everybody no, could get a, a, a climb down here. <laughs> no, but if I were the Americans as well, I would be very worried about Iraq because there were two major figures assassinated. Uh, one of them was, was the head of a major Iraqi um, uh, forces, uh, as it were. Yeah, the, and, the Iraqi militia. Yes, yes. yeah. And I would uh, really wonder about how much longer they will be able to hang in there in Iraq. Um, well, one of the things that, Connor, I think is a very interesting contrast here is Iran can afford to play the long game. 
and has played the long game, if you learn one lesson from Soleimani's long and, and ruthless career, it's that there was a clear and defined strategy to protect Iran's borders. Soleimani was more than capable of reaching out across the Shia-Sunni divide when it suited him. He was more than capable of collaborating with the, with the Americans, which he did and which people tend to forget, uh, to target the Taliban when that suited Iran's interests uh, and also in the fight against ISIS when that suited Iran's interests. Um, the Ayatollah doesn't have to worry about re-election, unlike Donald Trump. So we can't solve this or, or, or come with any clearer picture of what's going to happen in the future without considering what Iran's long-term interests are, because Iran thinks long-term. Uh, we're still unravelling the ramifications of the overthrow of the Shah in 1979, 40-plus years, or nearly 41 yeah. years later. Um, Iran thinks in those terms. You know, four-year uh, presidential terms and midterm elections don't tend uh, to allow that thinking in Western democracies, which sometimes is a great advantage, sometimes proves to be a disadvantage. So quite frightening in a way that we're looking at two, two sides to this dispute, neither of whom play by the kind of standard rules, I guess. Um, David, is there an Irish exposure to this problem? Well, I think as we were saying, I mean, I think there's a global exposure. If, if we have oil difficulties headed straight to Hormuz, we'll all suffer. There, there's a, you know, there's a global issue there as well. We have got Irish troops, obviously, in Yeah, South what Lebanon. about that story on the front page of the Sunday Independent today that the troops have been put, uh, is, uh, the Sunday Times, They're sorry. on high alert. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, South Lebanon is Hezbollah home, home ground. Um, now, what would the activities be there? I mean, I quite often it's 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 shooting missiles into Israel. It's a heightened, and that will provoke Israeli response. I I suspect that won't happen um, because I think they will want to keep South Lebanon quiet so that they can they can actually. There's not a big U.S. exposure in Lebanon apart from up around Beirut and around the, the embassy area. Um, so why actually provoke a response from Israel in South Lebanon? I I think our guys should be reasonably safe. Um, I would suspect Beirut, areas in Syria, areas in Iraq will be the targets of the, the Shia militias. Okay, but it, it sounds to me as if you think a cyber attack uh, on on Western soil is probably the could be the worst thing we're looking at here in the in the short term. Yeah? I think. Well, I think cyber attacks. I think the the missile attacks, the the, the low grade stuff we're seeing. Obviously, yeah. it's not low grade if somebody's shooting at you in a mortar, yeah. but it, that that kind of stuff. Um, but I think I think again at some stage in the long term they will be looking for a major retribution on this. Okay, David Murphy, thank you very much, and let's take a break. <laughs> 